Welcome to Midcast. I'm Minar Adli. President Nicolas Maduro is celebrating this week after a clear victory in the National Assembly elections that took place on December 6th. Helped by a partial opposition boycott of the process, the ruling socialist coalition led by Nicolas Maduro received over 69% of the votes cast and won a massive 253 of the 277 seats in the National Assembly, the only branch of government not under its, its control previously. While the government is celebrating, the low turnout of 31% has many worried its support is decreasing, although the vote was held in the middle of a pandemic. Now, the U.S. government, who has long considered Venezuela an official enemy, decried the process before it even had begun, instructing opposition parties to boycott the election, even sanctioning those that disobeyed their orders. Now, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo took to Twitter to call Venezuela's elections illegitimate, describing Maduro as a dictator and a strong man despite the fact that there were over 1,500 election observers and 300 representatives from 34 countries. Now, joining me today are um, four, <laughs> to four, joining me today are four people who know the country very well. Max Blumenthal, Anya Parampil, uh, Adrian Pine, and Alan McLeod. Now, Max is an award-winning journalist and author and editor of The Gray Zone, who has been reporting from Venezuela this week and observed the elections. His latest book is The Management of Savagery, How America's National Security State Fueled the Rise of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and Donald Trump. He is also the co-host of the Moderate Rebels podcast. Anya is a former producer and host uh, for In Question at RT America, who now hosts and produces her own show, Red Lines, which you can find at the Gray Zone, YouTube, and other platforms. Adrian is an associate professor of anthropology at the American University in Washington, D.C., in 2019, she occupied the Venezuelan embassy in D.C. to prevent it from falling into the hands of U.S.-backed self-declared President Juan Guaido. Like Max and Anya, she observed the recent elections close up, traveling to Venezuela to be an election observer. Our fourth guest is um, Midpress News senior staff writer Alan McLeod. Alan is an expert in Western media coverage of South America. After completing his PhD on the topic in 2017, he published five peer-reviewed articles on how media distorts the image of Venezuela. He's also the author of the book, Bad News from Venezuela, 20 Years of Fake News and Misreporting. Welcome to the show, everyone. Um, Max, I'd like to start with you. Uh, so you've been inside Venezuela for a while now, observing and reporting on the elections. Could you just give us an idea um, about what the atmosphere is like there and perhaps things that surprised you or would surprise Americans if they were there in Venezuela? Well, the atmosphere here has been more determined by the economic picture than the political situation, which is completely stable. Politically, the country's stable. There is a Wall Street Journal headline that was like a State Department press release on steroids which said that Venezuela is sliding into chaos. And there's just simply no chaos here. Uh, things are completely stable. And if anything, the security situation, including the situation for people, just common people uh, with respect to street crime has improved. And it's something that people do credit the government with. Um, the government here, and Nicolas Maduro, his legacy will be um, having defeated 
the civil war that the opposition led by the U.S.-backed arsonists of Leopoldo Lopez and Juan Guaido tried to incite. Um, he has defeated the civil strife. And of course, there's still polarization. But what we saw with the election was sort of a coming together around certain core issues that are central to the national the, 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 the national survival of Venezuela between Maduro's PESUV party and the, what, I, what some would call the moderate opposition, but which I would call the patriotic opposition. And they came together around opposition to sanctions because they're hurting everybody on every level and an opposition to the, uh, to the arsonist wing of the opposition which is basically subsisting on a steady flow of US dollars and doing it whatever the United States wants. So we saw very significant developments with the election where a number of mainstream opposition parties, uh, Democratic Action, COPE, which is based off the, it's kind of like the Christian Democratic Union of Venezuela and the party of Henry Falcon, who is a major opposition figure and a number of other parties participate in the, the elections despite threats from the United States, despite sanctions on opposition lawmakers. A former ally of Juan Guaido, who is the, uh, has been the speaker of the National Assembly, Luis Parra, was sanctioned by the U.S. State Department. And these opposition figures basically said, we don't care what the U.S. says. We are opposed to Maduro. We support, many of us support massive privatization but we want the country to still exist. And we're sick of this wing of the opposition that only wants to tear down the entire country and have common Venezuelan people suffer in order to achieve their hysterical political aims. So I think that that was the main outcome of the election. And yes, there was an opposition boycott, Juan Guaido acting as a, a proxy of the United States sought to depress turnout the U.S. ran a voter suppression campaign. Guaido exploited COVID and everything else to tell people to stay at home. Turnout was 32%. And, you know, considering that there are sanctions, considering there's a fuel crisis brought on by the U.S., considering that a, a wing of the opposition did not participate, it's not terrible when you think about U.S. midterm election results in 2010 or right. 1998. They were like 38%. So... The opposition is still, the, the opposition is completely fractured. And I think the political situation has stabilized. We can talk about the economic situation too, because that's a really interesting development. But the election was a political victory as expected for uh, Nicolas Maduro's PESUV. And you talked a lot about uh, the opposition in Juan Guaido and basically uh, you know, taking advantage of the pandemic and so forth. Alan, I'd like to ask you, um, about how Juan Guaido is depicted in U.S. media, and you know, if you can give us kind of a glimpse of what he what he truly is up to in Venezuela. Yeah, I mean, Juan Guaido told his um, told his followers not to participate in this election. He was going to boycott it. He even kind of hijacked a lot of the stay at home COVID hashtags that were around social media to tell people to stay at home, not to vote in this election. Um, he's right now he's uh, doing this consulta popular, which is supposed to be like a, a sort of uh, a ghost election, a mirror election of what's going on where people can 
uh, um, can uh, vote uh, using their smartphones, but it doesn't really appear to be taking off too well. And also there's a lot of people on social media showing how that even non-Venezuelans are able to vote in these things. Um, so inside Venezuela, he's not a particularly popular character, certainly not after his five coup attempts, um, all of which have been unsuccessful, uh, some of them catastrophically so. But certainly in the US, he still has huge backing. He had uh, bipartisan support from both Democrats and Republicans. People might remember that in February, he was given a standing ovation by the Democrats and uh, the Republicans at the State of the Union address. So the depiction of him uh, in the United States doesn't really match how I think ordinary Venezuelans feel about him. Uh, even somebody like uh, Henrique Capriles, who used to be kind of uh, associated with him, is now calling on the US just to stop funding uh, him at all. So this election seems to have uh, further created wedges between the right-wing opposition in Venezuela and seems more or less to have been a, uh, a small victory for the government. Absolutely. And if we really want to talk about election meddling, I think Venezuela and how the United States is meddling in Venezuelan elections is a, is a great example. And Anya, you've actually, you know, you've been on the ground, you've been interviewing people um, on the streets. I just recently watched um, your really great coverage um, at the Gray Zone. Um, can you talk to me about, you know, what's happening at these rallies? You, you've talked to people on the ground. What are they saying about the elections right now in Venezuela? Well, Max and I had the opportunity to attend the closing rally of the PESUV party, the Socialist Party here in Venezuela, about two or three days before the vote actually took place. And I've certainly seen larger rallies in Venezuela, in Caracas, just because they're usually so massive. And I think due to the pandemic, there was a, a resistance to kind of rally in the streets the way PESUV is used to. The, there was actually a very strict lockdown here in place in Venezuela. And then they've only recently started opening up with a sort of flex, flexible uh, schedule week on, week off for certain businesses. So people are, are adjusting now to coming back into normal life. But there still was a sizable crowd out in the streets uh, saying that they saw for the past five years what the agenda of the National Assembly led by the opposition was. They spent five years begging for sanctions against their own people from the United States, uh, leading to massive suffering in the country. And they also implemented a direct coup attempt against the government. And so people had the chance to see that agenda, to experience it. And so it's no surprise really then that this, this program was rejected on Sunday when Venezuelans went to vote. And then on the actual day of the process, of, of the voting process, people were very enthusiastic and wanted to send a message to the United States when I asked them, when we asked them, what is your message? That the United States should really be reflecting on its own system before it speaks about Venezuela. There was a really common point people would make is that there's a sense that we didn't really know who the president, the winner of the presidential election was in the United States until days after the vote. There are people still casting doubt on the results, including for some time the, the president himself, Donald Trump, uh, claiming there was fraud without 
presenting a, any clear evidence, but that there was due to the lack of the centralized system in the United States, an ability for the Trump administration to capitalize on on questions people might have about the vote and a lot of skepticism about the vote that the people of the United States have a lack of confidence in their system. So what right does Washington have to point fingers at Venezuela when when there are already there, there are still serious questions raised about its own vote, which took place just last month? Well, and, and, you know, we have politicians here that are insisting that Venezuela's voting system is completely rigged. It's illegitimate. And Adrian, um, you are one of the 1,500 election observers uh, there in Venezuela. Um, can you talk to us about the Venezuelan uh, voting system? Uh, you've mentioned in the past that Venezuela's voting system is among the most advanced in the world. Can you explain that to us? Sure. Um, and it was really amazing to see it firsthand. I mean, there are so many sort of measures, fail-safe measures in the system to, and redundant measures to ensure that there can't be fraud that, um, I mean, I was just blown away. So basically the way that it works, and we did, we did a training the day before the actual elections and sort of went through every process. First, um, people check their names on the list outside of the ballot center to see which which room that they will vote in. They go inside. They have to they and they get sprayed at every process. This was one of the things that was fascinating was that um, COVID biosecurity measures were completely integrated into the electoral voting system itself at every single step. So there was no step when they weren't being, you know, sanitized and ensured that nobody was going to get COVID from this. Um, so get sprayed, they go in, they first go to the desk where they register and they do it one by one. There's a person at each station, except for the actual voting booth, um, who's there to help them. They give them their voter ID card. Um, there is a contact-free little box for them to put it in so the election worker doesn't have to touch it. They then enter in the number into a machine that's built just for this. Uh, a picture of the person comes up. They can compare the person with a picture on their machine. And then the person has to do an electronic thumbprint um, to ensure that they are, in fact, the same person above and beyond the visual confirmation that the poll worker does. Once they are confirmed, then they go to the private voting booth. It's, uh, the vote is the electronic. Um, and so they vote for their individual candidates. And then they also vote um, for a party in, because there's a, both a representational parliamentarian system and a direct vote system in the current Congress. And so they fill out their ballot on the electronic system. And then that system prints out a receipt of their ballot. So it prints out a paper ballot from the ballot that's gone into the electronic system. They confirm that their vote is correct, that everything they vote, you know, everything they put in there was correct. And then they fold that up and go over and put that into an actual ballot box. So it's doubly counted. Um, the, the count is electronic and that's immediate, obviously, but at the end of the day, um, all of the receipts in the ballot box are counted as an audit of the electronic system. And that count is done with multiple uh, accredited monitors from all different parties. And there were 
107 parties represented in the elections. This is an incredible uh, plurality, a multi-party system, um, you know, and parties that are in vigorous, both ones that are friendly to the PSUV and ones that are in the opposition. And so there's this audit at the end of the day, multiple, you know, it's public, the, these citizens who are accredited are able to watch it. Um, and then just in terms of the end, you know, they, they have a checkout process at the end. So there's really, there's all these steps when it's impossible for somebody who is not accredited or who is not a registered voter to vote. Um, and, uh, and there is this fail safe to ensure that, um, that the vote is going to be accurate. You know, none of the sort of ridiculous multiple systems, hanging chads, different state by state procedures. Um, or, or, or methods to suppress the vote that we have in the United States. Um, it was truly impressive. That's amazing. And it just goes to show how much propaganda um, the corporate mainstream media spews and just how much people believe um, this kind of reporting that's coming out of you know, these stenographers within Western uh, corporate media. Alan, you've been covering uh, Western coverage of Venezuela for, for you know, a long time now. Talk to me about some of the stenographers within Western corporate media and how they are covering Venezuelan elections, like that of The Guardian um, or The New York Times. Could you give us some specific examples? Yeah, well, Adrian's uh, laid out how the election actually works. Um, but uh, regardless of uh, who wins the election, it seems, every time there is one in Venezuela, the corporate media in the West, anyway, do not uh, think it has been a, fair, a free and fair election. And this is often over and above the objections even of uh, US or Washington backed, Washington paid for groups that go to these places and then um, look at the elections and, uh, and uh, rubber stamp them as being f uh, free and fair. So for instance, like uh, the Carter Center has been to Venezuela many times and said that the election process is the most advanced in the world. Jimmy Carter famously said that in 2012. And yet even liberal outlets like The Guardian or The New York Times will call these elections a sham, the coronation of a dictator. And, uh, you know, uh, even just across the, the border in Colombia, they have elections where, you know, uh, certain candidates are, you know, suffer assassination attempts and there are paramilitaries um, terrorizing the population. But these are seen as basically steps forward for democracy. So there's always... Uh, a double standard when it comes to Venezuela. And that's precisely because of what sort of government it has. It's, uh, it's a government that doesn't really uh, toe the line uh, when it comes to what Washington dictates. And Max, um, you know, perhaps you could give us just a brief history, if you will. I know there's been a lot going on, but maybe just a brief history of why exactly Venezuela has been such a target um, of this um, regime change campaign for several decades. Well, clearly it's just because, you know, it's so corrupt and the U.S. wants to just save people from corruption. They really just care about the Venezuelan people so much. That was kind of the explanation I got uh, from a major mainstream U.S. reporter who I spoke to before a press conference of Nicolas Maduro two days ago that, you know, sanctions really aren't the issue. It's just corruption, mismanagement. Um, but the U.S. has sought to depose Venezuela's Bolivarian revolutionary government that came into power through democratic means since Hugo Chavez won in 1998 and returned Venezuela to the kind of 
a fourth republic system of neoliberalism, technocracy, and implementation of a sort of two-party duopoly. This might sound familiar to Americans, where basically two centrist parties exchanged hands and implemented IMF plans. But that wasn't popular among Venezuelans who were just simply being starved. Over 50% of the country was excluded for reasons of racism, uh, reasons of, uh, you know, just excluding poor people class. And so you've seen the development of the country along uh, what Hugo Chavez, the late revolutionary leader and, and uh, president who served several terms, called 21st century socialism. The U.S. just simply wants to get its hands back on the, one of the largest supplies of oil in the world. Uh, in addition, there are massive reserves of gold, uh, aluminum, and so many other, or so many other uh, natural resources that the U.S. and its allies would like to exploit. The U.K. would also like to exploit a disputed region between Venezuela and Guyana, uh, which is rich with oil as well and uh, prime for oil ex exploration. So it's a very simple story about the U.S. and Exxon wanting to get back into an economy where a revol revolutionary government, which is socialist and and aspires to be as democratic as it can be under siege has exploited the resources for the benefit of the population. Currently, uh, there are 3.3 million homes that's, that are provided for free to Venezuelans. I mean, the, the 300,000, I think, was built this year, which is a huge landmark in this mission program. There are 3 million families in Venezuela, which is a large portion of the population served by the CLAP food program, which basically provides free food for people and sanitary supplies. Uh, there are these food markets that are presided over by municipal governments across Venezuela, which serve people who are at the bottom of the poverty level and middle-class people and provide them with all sorts of food. I've visited them, we've reported on them at the gray zone for below market value. All of this is taking place to help the nation survive under these brutal sanctions, which are aiming to prevent oil exports. So Venezuela is starved of uh, assets. So it basically can't buy food. Even the CLAP program that I mentioned is being sanctioned. Uh, one of the key figures who has around, gone around the world and gone to Europe to try to secure deals to provide food for import. Alex Saab was actually kidnapped by the US through the Interpol program that it substantially controls. And Saab was tortured into a confession that he refused to make. Um, and now he's under house arrest. So this is just a war on the whole Venezuelan people. And it's resulted in a landmark law that was passed uh, somewhat hastily through the Constituent Assembly called the anti-blockade law. Um, this law is really significant because it represents an opening up of the economy. Some critics would call it liberalization, but it's what the Venezuelan government has had to do in order to bring in new capital. And it's opening up uh, sectors of the economy outside of the oil sector for exploitation and investment by foreign investors. Um, the government here just hosted scores of Chinese businessmen and these deals are going to help the government survive this siege. In fact, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a think tank in Washington that has helped 
organized the coup on Venezuela, conceded in an article seven days ago that the anti-blockade law will uh, make it much more difficult for the U.S. to enact a quote-unquote democratic transition, which means a transition back to those old neoliberal governments that provoke catastrophe. So and you actually see the economic situation has improved a little bit since I've been last here, but it's still very problematic in the countryside. Services are not where they should be, but the government is enacting a pragmatic program. It's caused a minor conflict with the, what I would call the ultra-left, and a number of candidates broke off into a kind of ultra-left uh, factional party running under the Communist Party's banner instead of the PESUV banner in this election. And they achieved basically 2% of the vote, which shows how uh, their vision was sort of rejected by the mass of Chavistas. And just one final point here about the economic transition into a kind of more mixed economy um, many critics of Nicolas Maduro who presided over this transition say this is not Chavismo. This is not the 21st century of Hugo Chavez. Hugo Chavez died before the full-scale economic attack of the U.S. began, before the sanctions came in first under the Obama administration with the national security threat listing in 2015. I think Hugo Chavez was a very pragmatic figure who would do whatever it took to provide for his constituents and Venezuelans in general and prevent the kind of regime change catastrophe that he opposed early on when he was one of the first major figures in the world to stand beside Syria's government and Libya's government against these regime change operations. And so this government is doing what it's had to do to move through various phases of a hybrid war. And so far it has come out on top, it seems to be uh, victorious, but not without significant damage to the economy, which is what happens when the empire is uh, holding you under a full court press. Absolutely. And, you know, what's pretty incredible about this whole situation with Venezuela feeding its population, like right now, uh, amid this global pandemic, we have food line, food banks, lines to, to food banks, excuse me, in the United States, literally uh, running miles long because people are really struggling to put food on their table. We have, um, you know, over 40 million people that have applied for unemployment, while the richest, uh, you know, Americans, the billionaire class, the 1% billionaires class are accruing more wealth uh, in American history than any time. So it's just such a contrast to see how one country who is sanctioned, how they're reacting um, in this pandemic and, and you know, treating their citizens and feeding their citizens. Meanwhile, we have here in the United States, uh, you know, our politicians are debating whether uh, they should send out these $1,200 checks for each American when like millions of people are struggling to pay for their rent and their mortgages. But then, um, you know, they just, you know, Congress just approved $740 billion uh, for the military. So such a contrast um, to see. And Anya, I, I, I want to talk to you Erwin, I would like to ask you about the 100,000 deaths um, that are a result of U.S. sanctions um, that have been called uh, a crime against humanity. And Max, you, you definitely explained that very, very well. Um, Anya, could you explain what everyday life is like under sanctions in Venezuela? 
Certainly, it's, it's, there's no denying that sanctions are impacting the situation here. There are, in some areas, extremely long lines for fuel. Venezuela has the largest oil reserves in the entire world, and yet sanctions have prevented the cu country from keeping its facilities and its, its ability to process uh, its oil it's prevented them from the upkeep and getting the parts that they need in order to do that. And actually, up until last year, when this new round of sanctions came from the Trump administration, Venezuela received light crude from the United States. Uh, that's because much of the crude here is heavy and it needs to be mixed and processed in order to actually be used as, as fuel in cars. And that's really hurt uh, the situation here. That's why we saw earlier this year Iran actually step in and provide some of that light fuel the United States previously provided here in Venezuela. And, and over four or five shipments now have come from Iran, I mean, on across the world, from the other side of the world in order to break this medieval-style siege of Venezuela. And that happened despite naked threats from the United States. The United States stationed Navy warships in the Caribbean Sea as an open threat to, against the Venezuelan state, but also any of its allies, which were brave enough to break the blockade, as Iran did. And so there have, we have seen lines for fuel, also lines for cooking oil, uh, but there is a massive effort on behalf of the, the government and its, its international allies to, to respond to this crisis. And what's remarkable, Minar, is that, yes, we've seen a massive amount of unnecessary deaths due to the sanctions, due to the fact that Venezuela can't even buy basic medications such as for example, insulin as a result of, of U.S. unilateral coercive measures imposed on the country. And yet in the midst of an international pandemic, Venezuela has actually fared better than most, if not all of its neighbors, whether that's Colombia, Brazil, Bolivia, Ecuador, Peru, all of these nations have experienced intense suffering as a result of the pandemic. And I guarantee you, if, for example, people were dying in the streets of Venezuela and their bodies were being left the way we saw images coming out of Ecuador, if that were happening here, it would be on the front page or the top stories in U.S. media. And Very yet true. we haven't seen those images. Why is that? Well, it's because due to the fact that Venezuela is an independent country, which has forged relationships uh, with its international partners in spite of U.S. sanctions, it was uniquely poised to respond to the crisis, while countries such as Brazil and, and the coup government in Bolivia had kicked out Cuban doctors. Uh, Venezuela had brigades of, of Cuban medical teams ready and available to visit people in their homes when they registered symptoms online. There's a very uh, intense process here with testing. Tests are readily available and free. People receive free medical care. The government used... Uh, buildings and dormitories and schools and hotels uh, and opened them as quarantine hospitals, again, where people could stay for free. And 
And on top of that, while U.S. allies in the region were completely abandoned by the United States, which is experiencing the worst COVID outbreak in the entire world, Venezuela was able to import tests and medical supplies from Russia, from Iran, from China, tons and tons of, 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 of medical equipment and, and much needed uh, supplies, which actually enabled them to respond to the pandemic more effectively and efficiently than its neighbors in spite of U.S. sanctions. And I think that fact, this experience has really uh, demonstrated to the world what the future will look like. It's the United States it can, it can, it's the most powerful empire to ever exist in the history of the world. It can wage uh, an unbelievable amount of, of harm and stress upon its, its uh, perceived enemies, such as Venezuela. It can cause fuel shortages. It can implement criminal sanctions. But at the end of the day, there is this new world emerging. I should mention that even in NATO ally, Turkey has forged very strong relations with Venezuela and actually supplies some of the products in the CLAP food program Max mentioned. Iran opened a supermarket here in Venezuela recently, uh, Megasis, which, which we plan on visiting and getting a better picture of what that what that market looks like but there is a war there's an economic war the u.s has waged on on venezuela and it's done a lot of damage but it's also f- waged this same maximum pressure campaign against iran against russia and against so many other countries in the world that are now coming together in order to say well we can build a system outside of the united states and it can actually succeed Absolutely. And you know, Anya, everything's just going to be okay, right? Because Trump is out of office now and we have uh, Joe Biden from the Democratic Party. So, you know, didn't you get a sign of relief when he was elected? Totally right. He was so great for Latin America when he was vice president over the under the Obama administration and oversaw coups in Honduras, in Paraguay, in Brazil, and and really took credit for Plan Colombia, which has militarized the region and led to immense suffering in Latin America. So no, people here are under no illusions about what a Biden administration means for them. Absolutely. And Adrian, I'd like to um, ask you this, and this is related to what I just talked to Anya about. Um, You know, while the Trump administration has ramped up aggressive actions against Venezuela, Um, increasing sanctions, supporting coups, and funding political parties. Not that it was any different under Obama or, you know, Bush before them. Um, But the Democratic Party platform even commits the party to pursuing regime change under Biden in Venezuela once he's in office, which is incredible how that's just stated, um, you know, uh, straightforward like that. Do you see any major changes for Venezuela in the future, especially with regards to the United States? Um, You know, what's interesting is uh, President Maduro has been stating in his press conferences and elsewhere that he is that he is hoping for a change in policy. But um, but uh, but, I mean, I think, to be honest, uh, 
we know there's not going to be a change in policy coming from Biden. Biden is just as much of a hawk, if not more so, as Trump, in particular with regard to Venezuela. So whereas Biden might have a less draconian policy toward Cuba, for example, um, there's a possibility that he could go back to the Obama era opening, which was also just a neoliberal attempt at regime change as opposed to the, the sanctions, um, the approach that that Republicans have pushed more for um, for Cuba. Uh, everything Biden has said, you know, he's called Maduro a thug. Um, he's uh, I mean, he's he's supported the sanctions, um, and this is something you know that, except for, you know, really, I mean, just I don't think there's any Democrat that has forcefully spoken out in support of. Um, of Venezuelans' right to sovereignty. Um, we saw with the, um, I think Alan mentioned that uh, Juan Guaido, who is just completely a laughing stock, as we've discussed, within Venezuela, was invited to the State of the Union and given a standing ovation by Democrats, um, uh, including Nancy Pelosi, who was standing there and doing her clap. Um, that you know, Demo that makes Democrats feel like she's such a queen and everything. Um, just giving their full support. Another thing to note is that during Biden's campaign, his whole strategy for the quote unquote Latino vote, which of course we know is a much more diverse vote than can be um, encapsulated within one, this overarching category, it was entirely geared toward the ultra right wing elite. Miami base of Venezuelans and Cubans, um, you know, and, and right wing Nicaraguans. So that, you know, they're, and it failed miserably, but nonetheless, those are the people, people like Ana Navarro, who is an open Contra supporter to this day, um, who have been the main advisors and the people who call themselves Latinos for Biden. And, um, and so his policy has been completely informed by this reactionary neoliberal fascist, um, very small uh, part of what represents the broader commu Latino community in the United States, if we're going to call it that, and also is a slap in the face to the, um, the Latinx organizers around the country who organized so hard to get Trump out um, that he really can thank his victory in Arizona, for example, um, to those individuals who were fighting for immigration rights rather than, you know, this sort of ideas about um, regime change that that Biden is catering to. So, um, you know, really the only hope for um, for solidarity from the United States is, I think, going to be um, dramatically pressuring the Biden regime uh, from grassroots movements and solidarity work from, from social movements within the United States, um, and sort of bi-directional solidarity, Venezuelan social movements, U.S. social movements, that really recognize that the violence that we face here in the United States, and in, in particular the communities of color, the Black communities, the Indigenous communities, and many other community, non-white communities, 
face um, is completely parallel to the violence that Venezuelans are facing under U.S. sanctions. We're seeing the exact same processes. We're seeing the privatization of everything. We're seeing the usurpation of democracy. If you look at Flint, Michigan, for just to take one example, the appointing of a city manager is basically a coup. It's taking away people's right to democracy. And the health impacts of that have been completely dramatic. Um, the police, the militarization and police violence, the attacks on communities of color are akin to the United States sanctions and it the added to this hybrid warfare, the, the militarization, the military attacks on, on Venezuela. So if we begin to see these connections between the violence of the U.S. empire at home and its violence abroad, I I think that's where the possibility for achieving a better policy lies, but we cannot count on Biden for anything. We'd be fooling ourselves. Yeah, absolutely not. And I hope everyone, you know, sensed my sarcasm when I asked that question about, <laughs> about, about Biden. Um, Max, if, if you will explain um, to our listeners uh, the benefit that the United States gets, um, apart from the very obvious, you know, control factor of supporting these right-wing groups across the world, whether it comes to uh, Brazil, um, Bolivia, or in Venezuela, or in Syria, or you know, arming literal uh, Nazis in the Ukraine, what benefit um, does the United States have from this? And where does this strategy stem from? Like, where, where does the root of the strategy come from um, when it comes to uh, how the US approaches arming and funding these right-wing groups? Well, all, all of these elements have different characteristics, these right-wing elements. I can tell you that from my understanding of the situation here and in Syria, there's a very good working relationship between the, although the, the Venezuelan government is, is dramatically different from the kind of uh, Ba'athist system in Syria. The two governments coordinate on intelligence, diplomacy, um, they you know, learn lessons from one another because both of them are targets of U.S. hybrid warfare and hybrid warfare from all sorts of adversaries. Uh, the role that Colombia plays against Venezuela as kind of a base for operations, harboring refugees and using refugees as a political weapon, harboring um, proxy militant groups is the same role that Turkey played during the proxy war on Syria. And so they've exchanged lessons from one another and the Venezuelans uh, understand what took place in Syria on a very uh, intimate and detailed level. And these right-wing groups exchange lessons too. I reported in 2013 on how the right-wing Miami Cuban lobby was actually holding training sessions with the Syrian opposition. And that extends all around the world to U.S. proxies, which are used to kind of keep the U.S.'s hands clean politically, uh, but to destabilize countries through groups that are completely dependent on outside funding, outside uh, you know, arms and training. So I, I could draw a parallel, even though there is no real armed wing of the arsonist Guaido opposition right now, I could draw a clear parallel between that and the so-called Free Syrian Army, which was basically a CIA-created brand for a weapons farm for ISIS and Al-Qaeda in Syria. What happened with the Free Syrian Army? Well, it was pretty clear. Uh, it's become pretty clear. You have um, 21 
of the 26 factions that have been repurposed into the Turkish Free Syrian Army, which has been deployed into Nagorno-Karabakh to in, in what is effectively Armenian territory to assist the Azerbaijani slash and burn campaign. Uh, we've seen these mercenaries also deployed to Afrin in Northern Syria to purge the area of Kurds. They've been used basically as a proxy by Erdogan and the AKP party since the CIA basically cut them loose. And it, they've been revealed as just complete mercenaries who will fight for whoever's paying and arming them. It's the same thing with Guaido and his group, which is basically subsisting on a U.S. gravy train and is taking the most extreme line because the U.S. pays them on the basis that they push regime change, destabilization, sanctions, and are willing to hurt their fellow countrymen and women. So Vanessa Newman, who Alan can talk about a lot, was the fake ambassador for the Guaido coup administration to the UK. She was involved. She's basically, we've written about her at the gray zone. She's basically this ultra wealthy socialite and heiress uh, who used to date Mick Jagger, who got involved <laughs> with the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington and started pushing all these bogus stories about Venezuela being a base for Hezbollah and helping to kind of bring in pro-Israel elements to the anti-Chavista operation and so on. But she was involved in this case, this major landmark legal case in the UK around the Bank of England seizing something like, what, $8 billion in Venezuelan gold because the Venezuelan government had parked its assets in the bank, assuming, well, they're a bank, they have to, they can't just steal it from us. But then Guaido comes in, Vanessa Newman's the ambassador, she's in charge of that. And the bank ruled that Vanessa Newman was going to have to pay uh, her own legal fees, tons of legal fees, um, I mean, tens of millions. And so she quit as ambassador because the money was no longer coming in. And that's where these characters are at. Basically, uh, a bunch of mercenaries who are at the end of the line here. And what we're going to see with Guaido's team is the same thing we've seen with uh, so many of these other proxy forces, like the Cubans who failed in the Bay of Pigs. They basically became absorbed into the US political structure and became an extremist uh, domestic, kind of an extremist pressure group, exile lobby in Florida. And I think that just to close, they played a big role in winning Florida for Trump. The, what, what, what's known as kind of the Magazuela, the Magazuelans. You'll see them on social media. They'll be like the most hysterical figures you'll meet. And they don't really reflect the views of the kind of patriotic opposition here at all. They've basically given up on their country and they just want a campaign of arson to burn it all down. They helped Trump win Florida. They've completely invested in Trump. They've joined up with right-wing Colombians there, the right-wing Cuban lobby, right-wing Nicaraguans. Miami-Dade uh, used to be a Democratic bastion. It's now kind of going Republican because of these, th this new lobby. And the Democrats don't have to pay attention to it because they won Georgia. Uh, they won several other swing states. Texas is sort of trending blue. And so they're, while you know, I don't expect anything from Biden given the history that Adrian and Anya laid out really well, um, if the Democrats would pay less attention to Florida, stop bringing people like Anna Navarro around and start actually 
you know, focusing on the more progressive elements of their base, they might not take, have to take such a strong line as Trump did when Trump really couldn't have cared less about toppling Maduro. He was going to probably meet with him if he won another term, but he wanted to win a second term. He wanted to win Florida. So I think there are a lot of elements in play here with the Venezuelan Guaido opposition getting so extreme that do create some political opportunities domestically in the U.S., and I appreciate everybody being here as we break through the propaganda machine um, in terms of uh, Venezuela coverage. And I just want to wrap up with this last question for Alan, if, if you can just kind of give us a two minute synopsis of, you know, you've been covering uh, Western media coverage of Venezuela and, you know, we all here work in independent and alternative media. Alan, what do you think the best thing uh, for people to do <laughs> to, uh, to continue to break through um, the propaganda machine when it comes to uh, U.S. foreign policy, when it comes to Venezuela, considering how much censorship is taking place um, and control over our news feeds uh, by the establishment today. Yeah, I mean, I've been studying how uh, journalists from big outlets like CNN or The Guardian uh, come to Venezuela and, and um, report on it. And what became clear after actually interviewing them is that they see themselves as mercenaries who are kind of like the shock troops, uh, literally trying to overthrow the government. Some of them even said that pretty much explicitly to me on camera. And so when we're really looking at countries like Venezuela, I think it's important to understand the biases of certain sources and try to look around for different uh, media outlets, perhaps uh, foreign media in English or alternative media, and you'll see a vastly different picture being presented. And it's at that point that you can start really seeing what's going on here and um, start making decisions for yourself about what's really going on. So I suppose uh, with any question about the media, I'd always say try and support independent media, try and look for other voices that are perhaps out of the mainstream and try and support them if you like them. Absolutely. Um, and I appreciate every single one of you for being here with me today. Um, I'm very proud of this panel that we put together. Um, you can find the Smitcast podcast on our website and on YouTube. Thank you so much.